Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. Today, our guest is Laura Micheletti-Puaka. Laura is an associate professor of history at Christopher Newport University, and she also directs the minor in women's and gender studies at that university and the Hampton Roads Oral History Project. She's very busy. Today, we're going to be discussing her essay entitled The Largest Occupational Group of All the Disabled, Homemakers with Disabilities and Vocational Rehabilitation in Postwar America. This is a great essay. It was recently published in the collection Disabling Domesticity, and it also happened to win the Disability History Association's Publication Award for Best Book Chapter or Article last year in 2017. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, it's a pleasure. So as I recall, Laura, your previous work has mostly been in the history of science. So what made you turn to disability history? Well, it was very much a chance occurrence. Um, About 15 years ago, I was in the archives at Purdue University doing research for my dissertation, which looked at women's scientific societies during the Cold War. And I was looking at the records of Lillian Gilbreth, the famous efficiency expert, psychologist, and engineer, who had also been a professor there at Purdue. And I was interested in Gilbreth's correspondence with the president of the Society of Women Engineers, which was one of the organizations that I was studying. So the first president of the National Society of Women Engineers was a woman by the name of Beatrice Hicks, H-I-C-K-S. And that's only relevant here because it meant that I called up the H box of correspondence, right? So Mm. correspondence between and about subjects that started with the letter H. And as I was flipping through the files, I came across this folder that was simply labeled handicapped homemakers. Wow. And I thought, hmm, that sounds interesting. It had absolutely nothing to do with what I was working on, but it sounded really interesting. So I made copies of the contents, put it to the side, and continued to work on this history of women's scientific societies during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. But I never really forgot it. You know, I flipped through it periodically. Um, I learned that it referred to homemaker rehabilitation projects uh, with mm-hmm. that Gilbert had been involved with. Um, I tried to do some, a little bit of background research only to find that there was hardly anything on the subject. Um, Meanwhile, my work in women's and gender studies had introduced me to theories of the body that helped me sort of think about the material in different ways. Um, And so I was definitely eager to learn more, but, you know, it, it did not figure in my dissertation at all. So, you know, fast forward 10 years, I had finished the dissertation I had just finished the book that was based on the dissertation. Mm-hmm. In fact, I mailed the manuscript, my book manuscript, um, to the press on a Friday. And the next morning, my husband and one-and-a-half-year-old son got in the car and drove out to Indiana, where my in-laws were living at that time. And then on Monday morning, I was back in the archive at Purdue, <laughs> calling up everything that had to do with homemaker rehabilitation. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> It was like the project was just waiting for you to have time, you know, and then you could dive into it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's completely how I feel. Oh, that's excellent. So, I mean, I'm so excited that you're working on this. And I would love for you to just tell people who haven't read this essay, and they all should, by the way. But uh, can you just tell us, you know, in brief, a little more about what this uh, what this essay is about? Yeah, absolutely. So, This essay looks at vocational rehabilitation programs for disabled homemakers in the post-World War II period in the United States. So historically, vocational rehabilitation had focused on male veterans and wage earners. 
And while during World War II, there was certainly an expansion of that system to include civilians, both men and women, its emphasis was still very much on paid employment. So homeworkers had been largely left out of it. But after the war, the, the post-war baby boom and the Cold War created this kind of climate that resulted in renewed attention to homemaking, both um, for disabled women and also their able-bodied counterparts. And so in this context, there, there emerges this really interesting and kind of eclectic um, group of people who are interested in basically exp in extending or expanding um, vocational rehabilitation to homemakers with disabilities. Um, who one especially well-known medical doctor and rehabilitation expert, Dr. Howard Rusk, refers to as the largest group of, of all the disabled, which is figures, the idea of figures in the title of the essay. Mm -hmm. um, they found, though, that including homemaking in vocational rehabilitation required um, attaching and also um, affirming its, its economic importance, so the economic importance of homemaking. And so I'm interested in part in how those efforts to um, what became in, in some parts not only revaluing in general, but actually monetizing housework compared with and also connected to later feminist efforts to do the same thing. Um, at the same time, I'm, I'm interested in how these various initiatives in the post-war period, which basically allowed homemakers to or helped homemakers in carrying out their work independently, um, how this compared to and or connected with um, the disability rights movement and especially the independent living movement that emerges in later decades. Absolutely. That's one of the things that I love so much about this project is that what starts as, you know, seemingly a, a pretty small interest, right, which is like homemakers and disability, actually expands out and has these incredible touch points with politics and cultural issues and the Cold War and economics, right? It's a really exciting project in that regard. So I know uh, many of us are probably somewhat familiar with vocational rehabilitation programs for men. You sort of mentioned this in your description of, of your chapter, so particularly soldiers, and a lot of this emerges after the First World War. So um, you know, tell us more about what vocational rehabilitation was actually meant to do. Right. So um, vocational rehabilitation more generally aimed to help people resume, quote unquote, gainful employment. And so, um, you know, thinking about the differences between the World War I era efforts that you mentioned and uh, the later efforts that I'm interested in, I mean, I would argue that in the, in the post-World War II period, you know, one of the, the big questions that these um, homemaker rehabilitationists are, are dealing with is, you know, what constitutes work in the first place? Like what counts as work, right? Um, and especially recognizing the economic importance of work that's carried out inside of the home and not simply outside of it, um, as had historically been the case. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so one of the, the figures that you um, touch on in the course of the essay is Lillian Gilbreth. And uh, I understand from your work that she was involved in one of the major kind of pieces of this project for helping disabled homemakers, and that's something called the Heart Kitchen. So can you tell us a little bit more about what the Heart Kitchen is, how this came about? Yeah, so I think in order to do so, I actually have to backtrack and just give a little bit of background on Gilbreth herself. Yeah, please do. Um, 
So I mentioned this kind of fascinating and also quite eclectic in many ways network of people um, who became involved with homemaker rehabilitation after the war. And from what I've encountered so far, Lillian Gilbreth really seems to be at the center of it. So mm-hmm. nearly all of the homemaker rehabilitation programs that um, they basically sprouted up in all parts of the country in the post-World War II period, almost all of them like will credit publicly Lillian Gilbreth with inspiring them or even helping them or serving as a consultant um, in some way. Mm-hmm. Gilbreth is a really fascinating figure, and I, I think it's easy to see how she was drawn to this field um, as it combined her various interests. And so again, just before I get to the heart kitchen, in terms of understanding how that came about, I'll just say that um, so during the 19-teens and early 1920s, Lillian Gilbreth and her husband, uh, Frank Bunker Gilbreth, they had been instrumental in um, developing the field of motion studies, which is mm. um, a subset of time and motion studies. And so their focus was less on the time part, but rather on identifying and streamline, streamlining the various movements that were needed to carry out tasks. And so they developed this system of what they called Therbligs, T-H-E-R-B-L-I-G-S, which was a near anagram of the word Gilbreth. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so basically, this was a term that they used to denote each specific movement needed to carry out a task. And so basically, they would like study people's movements, they even filmed people carrying out different activities, and then chart the third legs, right? Wow. <laughs> Looking for ways to essentially eliminate some. And so eliminating third legs, they said, um, would allow workers to carry out their work in the most efficient manner, um, to carry out their work with the least physical fatigue, with the least psychological fatigue. And so um, they actually worked as consultants to all sorts of businesses, all sorts of government agencies. And after World War One, they applied these findings to disabled veterans, right? So how do we in- improve workplaces um, and work processes in order to assist these disabled veterans resume gainful employment. Mm. Um, now, Frank, Frank Gilbreth, he dies in 1924. And after that, Lillian Gilbreth found that many of the companies that had hired her husband really didn't want to deal with her because wow. she was a woman. Yeah. And so it's at this point, she increasingly applies her expertise to quote, unquote, quote, unquote, um, feminine areas, right? So she works with department stores to improve their layouts. She works with a sandwich making company. Um, and most relevant to your question, she also starts designing kitchens. So kitchens that allowed homemakers to improve their productivity by reducing the number of movements they had to make. Mm, <clears throat> and so sense. these are sort of general kitchens. So and many of them had been sponsored by like um, one famous one being sponsored by a gas company, for example. Mm-hmm. And these are, the, these are actually kitchens that are marketed toward mass populations. But during World War II, Gilbreth, she, she winds up on this New York Heart Association committee. And this committee is interested in how to um, employ or utilize men with cardiovascular disease in industry. And somehow it comes up that other kinds of work should be considered too. Um, and this includes homemaking. And so an important outgrowth of this committee was the, was the creation of this heart kitchen that you had asked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was originally it sprung out of like the New York Heart Association. It's later adopted by the American, uh, the American Heart Association. And it's designed to assist women with cardiovascular disease um, carry out their work 
with the with the least physical fatigue or psychological fatigue. And so it's really interesting. So um, things are strategically placed in order to reduce the number of movements. And so, and there's also the number of a number of assistive devices that are involved as well, such as um, a table with wheels, for example, okay. that that is supposed to be useful in terms of returning, you know, serving and returning dishes to the kitchen. Um, a lot of the a lot of the innovations, I guess, in that kitchen involved, um, you know, basically things like storing things near the point of first use. And there's actually a really interesting graph or map. Um, so they created this heart association or this heart kitchen, and then the American Heart Association helped to publicize it. And so there's actually um, sort of an instructional film and also a pamphlet that accompanied this instructional film. Oh, and it wow. includes a fascinating map of a woman making a meatloaf in her heart kitchen. And so there, I think there are actually two, I believe there are two images. Um, there's definitely one that showed her making, making meatloaf in the most like efficient manner possible, meaning like the least number of steps. So she yeah. like calculated her steps and showed her movements, um, which was contrasted with a woman, you know, making inefficient meatloaf. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. What a fascinating kind of slice of the moment, right? That post-war era with certain particular cultural values in place about women, right? It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And now, am I correct in understanding that the Heart Kitchen, um, the model for it actually ended up back at NYU with Howard Rusk in his, in his uh, Institute for Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation? Is that right? Yes, and that's my understanding that that's where it ended up. At first, when it was first created, it actually debuted at the, um, I think, the Museum of Natural History in oh, New York wow. yeah. as part of Employee the Handicapped Week, but it was later relocated to Howard Rusk's Institute, um, also in New York, where it was used for research and training purposes. Yeah, you're right. There really is this kind of cluster of people all working on these, and there's a lot of overlap. And another um, body and individual that comes up is the federal government's Office of Vocational Rehabilitation. I believe the head of that was uh, Switzer, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So there seems to be this kind of positive feedback loop happening between these um, university-based or, um, in, in the case of the Heart Association, like nonprofit-based sorts of projects, and then the federal government kind of stepping in and seeing the value in these, right, and starting to provide funding. So can you talk us through a little bit more of that? Yeah. Um, and so you had mentioned Switzer. And just to sort of follow up, we are just talking about Howard Rusk. Maybe I should just say another word about him. Yeah, of course. Um, so... You know, Rusk, he, he, he headed up this major rehabilitation institute in New York, um, and he and his staff there at NYU, um, he and his staff there carried out a number of these studies that were designed to assist homemakers with disabilities. And Rusk, he also had like this column in the New York Times. Um, I should add that he was actually instrumental in crafting this federal legislation that ultimately resulted in the expansion of support for vocational rehabilitation, wow. uh, including for homemakers. And he was actually quite instrumental with this. And from what I've been able to piece together, he had a, a rather close relationship um, with Mary Switzer, who, as you pointed out, was the director of the Federal Office of Vocational Rehabilitation. Um, and it seemed like, you know, they were very much in partnership 
Um, and she in particular, in her role as director, you know, she helped to expand um, vocational rehabilitation legislation and especially um, the 1954 piece, the uh, 1954 Vocational Rehabilitation Act that probably most um, noticeably provided support for research, these research and training programs that had to do with homemaking. Hmm. That's really interesting. So, I mean, to step back and kind of take a look at some of the larger cultural issues that are at stake, right? So what are some of the arguments that were made to support spending money on these kinds of programs for women? I mean, this is the the height of the Cold War, right? So how, uh, how did they justify these efforts? Probably the most frequent ones and um, what seemed to be some of the most or persuasive ones sort of combined economic and cultural reasons. Mm. And so these various vocational rehabilitationists, whether they were, uh, you know, inventors or medical experts or policymakers, um, they would often argue that these various programs that um, essentially allowed women with disabilities to carry out their work inside of the home, at least in part, um, protected a family's economic security mm-hmm. in the sense that they wouldn't have to, say, like, fall into debt um, by having to hire outside help. Oh, right. Basically, they made this argument that that women were important economic actors whose work helped to keep the family afloat. Um It was also sort of suggested that marital stability and family stability um, very much depended on women being able to carry out these domestic responsibilities. Um, And I would also just add that, and I think it was stated less explicitly or publicly or perhaps even frequently, um, you know, much of the bottom line seemed to be that you know, if these homemakers could carry out their duties on their own, then they could remain married. Hmm. Then they remain dependent on their husband, right, for financial support instead of having to be dependent on the state for financial support. Mm-hmm. And I think this actually brings to light like a really interesting and also um, a really important sort of contradiction that's at the heart of these programs that on the one hand, you know, they aim to assist disabled women carry out their work independently but at the same time, they um, reinforce their dependency on male breadwinners. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the things that I really love about how you describe this in your essay is that you use this really helpful term, economic citizenship, right, which you borrow from some other scholars um, to describe this drive to get people working, whether that's working um, men, you know, working out of the home or women working in the home. Um, But you also mention a few really important kind of cultural elements of women being in the home as well during the Cold War. Um, So would you mind just talking a little bit more about those? Yeah, I mean, we definitely see in the post-World War II period this heightened emphasis on domesticity, um, obviously, especially for white middle-class families, Mm. although it becomes this kind of standard um, or sort of measuring stick that many people, even if their actual lives and lived experiences don't mesh with that, um, still feel pressure to conform to in some way. Um, And I think that sort of this this post-war emphasis on homemaking um, and sort of creating what's seen as stable family life had these sort of economic dimensions, as I suggested before, um, in terms of keeping the family afloat and sort of 
having to revalue women's economic contributions within the home and or at least recognize women's economic contributions within the home. But then there's also sort of the cultural dimension of that. And, you know, what we see, and especially in the media, um, you know, both television shows, magazines, newspapers, is this sort of argument that, you know, strong family life will somehow protect families, protect communities against, you know, the dangers of communism, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. And so that becomes, I think, another component in terms of understanding why there's this push to bolster or to strengthen um, these, this kind of idealized family, you know, white middle class, especially um, family structure that mm. is very much this sort of dominant construct in the post-World War II period. Mm, that is really, really interesting. So, I mean, so far we've kind of been talking more about the top-down side of this, you know, so Russ, Gilbreth, et cetera, um, devising these strategies, right, to help women with disabilities in their homes. But your article is, or pardon me, your chapter is wonderful because it also talks about the other side. So actually women with disabilities providing input as well. And can you tell us a little bit more about how this went? You know, were there certain initiatives that really focused on gathering women's perspectives? I'd love to hear about this. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that they involved disabled women as much as they should. So mm. do you let me my comments with that. Yeah. However, there certainly were some programs that um, did make quite deliberate efforts to consult or at least survey women with disabilities about their experiences. And then um, they actually did use that information in either crafting the assistive devices they came up with or the work simplification methods that they ended up promoting um, in their various like research and training programs. So um, probably the most, or one of the most meaningful examples that I have encountered with regard to this um, so far is the quote-unquote handicapped homemaker project mm. that was carried out at the University of Connecticut, um, UConn. And so this actually included a disabled woman on the research team. She actually, um, a woman by the name of Neva Wagner, she had contracted polio as a child and um, Wagner, she actually coordinated a lot of the research at UConn, you know, oftentimes in providing, making sure to provide her own input too. And so, for example, um, many of the devices and many of the strategies that the project ended up using um, very much resembled methods that Wagner had, you know, long used and had used basically since childhood. Mm, interesting, interesting. So they're actually basically taking things that women are already doing in their own homes and um, maybe um, drawing more attention to them or encouraging other women to use them too. Yeah, and I can elaborate. I mean, um, they, you know, Wagner and other uh, disabled women who were surveyed or consulted would often provide input about the kinds of methods or the kinds of techniques or the kinds of devices that they knew already to work for them. So they weren't reliant on these quote unquote experts to provide them with solutions, but rather they were providing input along the way. And so um, Wagner, for example, she shared information about techniques for like washing and hanging laundry with one hand. Um, she shared information about how to like diaper a baby, baby um, with the use of one hand. And um, yeah. 
That's great. I, I love those examples. It seems like a lot of the examples that you've come across were particularly related to physical disabilities. And I'm wondering if you came across anything about mental health, for example, or intellectual disabilities, or was this something that doesn't seem to have crossed the researchers' minds? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I have not encountered much about intellectual disabilities or mental health or anything like that. Um, the examples that I've encountered so far are really limited to physical disabilities. Um, a lot of these have to do with um, mobility issues. They sort of originate with this with this focus on cardiac homemakers who okay. were expected at a time to conserve as much energy as possible. And from there, the various programs sort of expanded to include women with some sort of um, restricted mobility whose uh, movement was restricted in some way. Mm -hmm. However, I'll add that I've also encountered some examples um, of visual impairment that I've started to address as well. Oh, that's really exciting. Was there any stigma surrounding women, for example, who couldn't be helped um, by these sorts of efforts or women who didn't want to participate in these projects? Or is that where the archival record kind of goes silent? Yeah, I, I haven't encountered any examples yet. This mm -hmm. is still sort of early on in my larger project. Um, it's certainly possible. And so I'm certainly not going to rule it out. I just haven't personally encountered examples of that yet. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What about any examples from um, the larger society pushing back against these efforts, right? So I can imagine uh, people perhaps in the period, and you still hear this today, unfortunately, saying that um, women with disabilities, for example, shouldn't be raising children, right? Mm -hmm. So did you come across any um, sorts of reactions like that? Um, I can't say that I came across reactions, but I did, you know, come across plenty of documents just sort of as in terms of establishing a background for all of this, that there very much was this stereotype um, that that or assumption that women with disabilities weren't fit for marriage or weren't fit for motherhood. Mm. Um, and I would argue that um, in some ways, homemaker rehabilitation tried to fight this, mm -hmm. tried to combat this um, by putting those things or helping those things to be within um, reach of women with disabilities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's them be able to, you know, achieve, you know, go on and, and um, you know, be married and have children. Well, that's what's also really exciting about this project is you're working in the post-war era, obviously, immediate post-war era. But you also make this really um, nice argument that a lot of this work provided a foundation for two causes that were really prominent in the 60s and especially the 70s, which is the feminist movement and also the independent living movement. Um, so would you mind talking us through just a little bit about kind of the how this foundation that was laid in the you know, 40s and 50s um, really provided this background for these later causes? Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely see similarities um, as to establishing a cause and effect relationship is something different, but I can definitely note similarities between efforts to, you know, first with regard to the, the women's movements, um, with efforts to revalue homemaking um, and and later efforts to do, you know, pretty much the same um, with the women's movements of the 1960s and 70s, especially with um, efforts to say, like, monetize housework, right? There's like the wages for housework campaign yes, of in the early 70s. Um, and the same thing with disability rights. Um, 
I mean, right now what I'm working on is trying to show uh, sort of definite connections or uh, sort of elaborate on individual people who were active in the vocational or the the homemaker rehabilitation programs um, and who were later active in women's rights organizations or who were um, later active in the disability rights movements as they emerged in um, the late 60s and especially the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'll be so excited um, as you put these pieces together, right, to see how this emerges, because I'm sure that there were connections and it's just a matter of, you know, continuing with the research. So it's, it's great mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm, I mean, I just love material objects. And I'm wondering if any artifacts from any of these projects survive. Um, can you still find like a model of the heart kitchen anywhere or <laughs> any, uh, you know, devices or something that were invented for this? I mean, do you have, uh, do you have any leads that you can tell us about? <laughs> I, I have not encountered any models of the heart. I, have, I haven't looked either for a model of the heart kitchen. Um, I was able to get one of the the homemaking manuals. There was a, a manual or a, a book that was put out by Yukon um, that, that was basically a summary of all the work that was done. It was published in the 60s. So I was able to get a copy of that on eBay. So wow. <laughs> I did about that. But um, I'll add that the Yukon website has a ton of photographs from their project, from the quote-unquote handicapped homemakers project. And so those are readily accessible. Oh my gosh, I know what I'm doing this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're super fascinating. Yeah, so this is, I think, maybe a question that we'll have to wait for your larger project before we have fully answered. But you talk uh, in this article, obviously, a lot about the immediate post-war period, as I said, but what happens after the 1950s? Like, do these efforts just kind of peter out? Like, they in the 50s, they're publishing all these amazing pamphlets and stuff that you've described, um, things, you know, how to be a better homemaker sort of thing with a disability. And does this continue? Does this peter out? Does it evolve? Do you have answers to that yet? Yeah, I have. I, I have to say, I don't have much. I mean, much much of my research so far has really focused on the late forties, the nineteen fifties, and and the early sixties. So I can't say for sure. I mean, my brief glimpse into documents from later years um, suggests to me that they that these efforts, these earlier efforts, were somehow folded into the larger vocational rehabilitation system. Um, but I don't have a super clear answer right now in terms of exactly how or why or what was gained or lost, etc. No, absolutely. I love talking to people when their project is still in process because there's this great like to be continued kind of suspense, right? right? And I I think all we're doing is building excitement for your book, Laura. So I'm just saying. (laughs) Um, So I take it that there is a larger book project that you're potentially envisioning coming out of this? Yes. And so I do uh, imagine this all to be part of a larger book project on the history of disability and domesticity in the post-World War II period. And so um, it's really early, early in the making. So I have, you know, basically exhausted um, a number of archives, but I really need to get to um, the, the National Archives in College Park to to work with the federal records there. Um, And also I'd love to include some sort of cultural component. So I envision needing to do some additional work with, you know, women's magazines or television shows or something along that line to provide it um, a fuller dimension. However, even with that said, I I still do think that um, homemaker rehabilitation will, will still play a major role in that. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can just imagine. I guess it's always nice to have an excuse to watch movies as part of your quote-unquote research. You know? Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> well, Laura, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. And we will yes, all... Me. Oh, of course. Yeah. And we will all stay tuned for the next steps <laughs> of this project. I think we're all really excited. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.